Welcome to Reboot Republic, a podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be today to be joined back on the podcast by two regular enough contributors um, in the whole area of um, children, quality of life of children in this country, the services we are providing, their well-being, how are we doing, um, and what should be done. I'm joined by Tanya Ward, who's the CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance, and also by um, Mark Smith, who is the past president of the Psychological Society. Oh, I'm gone. PSI, Mark, Psychological Society of Ireland. Close enough, that'll do. <laughs> that'll do. All right, cheers. Listen, Mark, Tanya, thanks so much for joining me today on Reboot. Sorry, great to be here. Um, I might go to you, um, Tanya, because the reason why we have you on is you've launched uh, your report card again, which is, as I was reading it, is that your 14th year of the report card. And it's become, um, I think, quite an important annual sort of review of, in many ways, the state of Ireland, how we're doing for children. Um, and you have a, you know, a number of areas where... Um, we're doing better and a number of areas where we're doing worse. And but maybe you could before you go into that briefly, just give a sense of, you know, 14 years. How do you think Ireland has changed briefly over those 14 years? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because the, 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 the report card itself, what it's doing is it's tracking how the government is delivering on its promises to children in the programme for government. So it's not the promises like in the children's rights lines we might want. It's the ones that ended up that were negotiated by the political parties. That's a, a result of all the lobbying that takes place by the community and voluntary sector and all the big professional bodies uh, al- alongside that. So, you know, Undoubtedly, there's something sometimes missing from the report card that you'd, you'd like to see. And one one of the things that's interesting about this particular program for government is that, you know, some of the issues we're seeing, um, uh, particularly because of the the, the several uh, rolling lockdowns that we've had, you know, the program for government isn't going to be able to address those those key mm. issues. And yeah. we, we need a national recovery plan um, on top of that. But if you kind of look at over the, the 14 years, I mean, there's been massive change in Ireland. There's, there's no doubt about that. And if, if you were to look at this area 14 years ago, what you would have been seeing is a big focus really on the failure in the child protection system. Because it's at, it's at that time there's this accumulation of reports arriving showing that vulnerable children have been failed by the child protection system, failed by their families. And then when they went into the child protection system, failed, um, ma- ma- many ending their lives uh, as a result uh, or, or just not being identified early enough in their lives um, yeah. and dealing with the aftershock of that. What you do see change, I think, over that, that the course of the time is that major reforms happen. So there's new legislation around children first. So if 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 a child is if there's a risk of a child being abused or neglected, the child protection services are meant to kick in. There's a, a new child protection agency. There's a new department of children. Um, there's a ministry of children. So there's a lot of different kind of structural reforms that take place that are about really correcting the political system because children were kind of seen on the margins they were seen and not heard um and i suppose those 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 reforms unfortunately some of them were rolled out during the recession so they really limped along and struggled you're starting to see the benefits of those reforms now the i think the big challenge 
uh, and it's it's twofold. One one of the areas where we, we we've struggled is in relation to I think poverty and living conditions for children and young people. Yeah. Um, you know, the measures during the recession drove up the numbers of children living in poverty. There's been some measures introduced then to address it by government, but unfortunately the context is very challenging, particularly in relation to housing and the cost of housing. So even if government is introducing measures like in childcare or uh, it, it increased payments for children, income supplements. The problem is that alongside that, parents are struggling to pay the rent alongside that and it's sucking up uh, the income. So I think that's a major challenge. And the other piece I think where we, we, we've let children down is when we come to services, particularly in the social and, and health area. So, um, you know, massive waiting lists for mental health services, occupational therapy, assessments for children with different level, different types of disabilities. We didn't actually plan the workforce in those areas to deal with those the, the, the needs that those children have. And, 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 you, and you see that then playing out in the education settings that the schools, um, they mightn't be able to cope with the child's disability or, and, and this isn't across the board because there's a big variation in schools. Like one principal will be able to keep a child and the child will progress and do well. Another school will struggle and they'll put a, suspend the child's education for part of a day. So you see this being played out then in, in the education settings as well. So they're the two areas where I think we really need to, to shift our, our focus um, yeah. uh, in the coming years. Yeah, no, I think it, it's very interesting. I was struck as well reading by it that, that you know, the idea that that, you know, we reach a point where, you know, Ireland, you know, children in Ireland growing up all have, you know, equal chances, equal opportunities, equal, obviously not equal outcomes, but actually the possibility, the, you know, support to flourish in their own lives. And I was thinking that it's not something as well that you reach an end point of. And it's also, I would say, you know, it's really important that, you know, while we say, okay, there are many aspects of children's lives that have improved over the last 14 years. And, you know, we can argue different levels about, you know, has poverty become more entrenched in some areas? Has it improved? But there's new issues. But that the idea that it's not some sort of, you know, that the expectations I think that we have for our children, thankfully, has improved in that we're growing our expectations of what we believe, you know, growing up in Ireland as a child should be what you should have. And I think that puts more and more pressure all the time. So just briefly, in terms of your analysis of the government and how it's doing. Maybe you could give us some of the highlights and or some of the positives and negatives, the high scores and the low scores yeah. from the report. So look, on the high scores in this this area of the report card, I mean, the government gets an A when it comes to the uh, introducing the harassment, um, harmful and communications bill. And that was to really outlaw uh, image-based sexual abuse um, and to prevent image, images being shared. Um, you might remember Coco's Law and yeah. situations where people's images are being shared by ex-partners. So Government committed to introduce legislation and they've done it and, and they've got an A for that. The, the parts of that I think that's been more groundbreaking this year, to be honest, and um, is around when it comes to how migrant children are being treated. So mm. uh, we've, you know, historically in Ireland, we haven't had an upfront um, regularization program for people who have become um, undocumented in the country. There have been attempts to deal with it in different ways, but never really an, an overt national program. And there was a great pro, uh, you know, campaign led by the Margaret Wright Centre. Um, and I personally, through their work, got to meet 
um, I got to meet lots of young people who had grown up here undocumented and talking to them. I mean, it, it was always it was heartbreaking because they they yeah. knew that they couldn't get to university. They couldn't pay for it. They used to they talk about pretending to their friends that they were going to they were they were filling out the CAO form and they were going to go here and they were going to go there. I mean, they all had high aspirations for themselves, but they kind of knew that they weren't going to be able to get a job where they were paying taxes and working above above board they kind of knew that there was they were going to be an underclass unless something was done for them i think what's significant in in the past year is that the government has introduced a regularization program that children can apply and and benefit from um and the other thing they've done is they've extended it to children in the protection system as well which wasn't expected actually so i think that's a really good thing because it gets children out of the direct provision system um at the moment uh if they're able to get papers and what's also significant i think as well is that the government have published a white paper to end um direct provision and in that white paper it's committing that after if a child arrives with their family, they might be accommodated in one of four centres, but then they'll go and live in a household um, in the community yeah. and that would be own door accommodation. And that's really significant because of the institutionalisation of direct provision and the impact that that life had and the the poverty that people were living through in direct provision. There's also talk of a payment that would be equivalent to child benefit for children in the refugee system. So I, I think they are all real positive developments and the other kind of key positive development is in relation to what's called reduced timetables and this is an issue um that unfortunately grew over the last couple of years to where some statistics were were pointing to maybe one in four children in primary school were on what's called reduced timetables and that's when the child's education has been suspended for part of the day so they might only be getting three hours maybe uh they could be leaving school early Maybe they're not even getting the full five days in school and the, the school would say they need to do it uh, to because they can't cope with the child's needs or maybe there's, they, they use behavioural management as another reason. Um, and what we were, I mean, for us, it's a, it was a clear children's rights violation because if you don't get, you know, a full day like every other yeah. child, you're not going to reach your full potential. And so what the government did last year was it introduced, I mean, it's the first step to address this issue, but there's going to be, there's national guidelines now that if you want to, as a school, put a a child on reduced timetables, you have to go and you have to uh, let TUSLA know and you have to have a plan to reintegrate them. So I think they're the kind of main positives in this year's report, Kurt. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it's really, again, you know, it's important to highlight those and, you know, where there is some progress taking place and, and, you know, commend all the work that's done by the different organizations, as you mentioned, the Migrant Rights Center of Ireland. And also a lot of this then is the implementation is the issue. So I'll, I'll come back, Tanya, uh, Tanya, sorry, in terms of the um, the homelessness in particular, which I know is a big area that you've highlighted and unfortunately has has worsened. Um, Mark, Mark Smith uh, from Psychological Society, uh, past president of Psychological Society of Ireland, um, you have been looking at the whole area of mental health and children, young people for, for a long time. Um, and you've been on the podcast before discussing this. Um, the, we've seen in the report card highlighted this issue of children, young people going to adult uh, psychiatric services. Could you maybe explain just what is happening in relation to this? Well, it's been happening for many years, as we care to remember, um, is that when a child presents to an accident emergency department out of hours or at the weekend um, if there are no beds available and there's an acute shortage of inpatient beds for children, 
Um, only two of the of the four public units actually can take emergency admissions, but they're usually full, so they can't. So they're left with a position where you've got a child at risk, and sometimes the decision they take is that they're going to put that child in an adult inpatient uh, psychiatric unit instead. Yeah. Um, and we've seen every year, I put a tweet up about it a couple of months back, where I showed over the last five to six years, every year a newspaper headline showing children continue to be admitted to adult units. So the practice has continued. Um, the government has not you know, managed to do what it said it would do in terms of stopping the practice. We had the Mental Health Commission in 2011 recommend immediate end to the practice, but 11 years later, it's still happening. And what the report card really highlighted quite well is that with the, the heads of bill for the new Mental Health Act, they've actually put it into legislation that um, it shouldn't happen unless you know, you're really stuck, basically. But it puts it on legislative footings that there's still an ability to place a child in an adult unit if you need to. But given that we know that there is an acute shortage of beds, we know it's going to happen. So it's it's really kind of a, a tacit agreement to allow the practice to continue with no clear plan as of yet as to how they're going to increase the bed capacity. And what sort of numbers would we would we be talking about here and what sort of impact does it have on children and young people? From what I can recall, I think last year it was 25, I think, last year. Yeah. Uh, but just to even take it back a little bit, the impact even for a child going into a child uh, in inpatient unit is huge for yeah. the families because if they're going into an inpatient unit, it means that their mental health is compromised so much, they're at such a high risk that they can only be safely supported within a very secure place with 24-hour staffing, with multidisciplinary support in, a, in an acute stage of crisis. So it's, it's a very frightening experience for a lot of children and for the parents having to say goodbye to their child for an extended period of time. So even that stress in itself is something that can be very overwhelming for a family. Now, if you take a situation where you have your vulnerable 16 or 17-year-old that's been placed into a ward with acutely unwell adults, um, so it's not just your child not being with you anymore. Is now well, they're with acutely unwell adults. What's going to happen? It requires additional one-to-one staffing that they don't have to keep that child safe. They don't have the range of activities and occupational activities that children need in there. So there's no real positives other than in that immediate moment, the perception is that it's keeping the child from immediate risk of serious harm and death. But we're also counteracting that with trauma that the child endures and being placed with adults. So it's not that by putting them in there, you're protecting them completely. There is still a degree of risk. They're just taking a hope, a punt, that it's better than than bringing the child home and, and being at risk at home. It is incredible and to think about that there is children been put into this situation um, because of the absence to develop child and adolescent services it just it seems incredible that whatever number are put into that and i don't know maybe you would know would would this potentially deter people from going for support if they're potentially going to be going into adult services i don't think it deters people because i don't think they would ever imagine that when you go to seek help that the outcome of that help would be placed in an adult ward yeah. i don't think there's enough consciousness that that could be the, this, the risk but i think Understandably, we, f- we focus this conversation on the end point, which is around if a child is at such a risk that they're placed in an adult unit. We also have to look back and see where all this journey starts. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Absolute acute shortage of primary care psychologists. So that when, when difficulties emerge at a mild level, I know in some areas that the wait for primary care intervention could be up to two years. So, you know, if, if you're st- struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with your mood, with body image, and 
there's the possibility of early intervention, which is what it's supposed to be in up to six state sessions or some group work that would alleviate your distress. That would, that's what the system should be designed to do. So we should be front loading our services via slogic care, via all, all of the primary care posts to intervene early. But we're not. And what we're seeing then is that the knock on effect is that we get significantly increased CAMS waiting lists. Um, because children are waiting, waiting, waiting. And what happens when you wait when, when you're not well? You deteriorate. Then they become the, that they need the, the support of CAMS, but CAMS doesn't have the resources to meet the existing need, never mind to also take on board those kids that have the possibility of being okay at a primary level, but then end up coming to CAMS. We've seen the Vision for Change report from 2014 make recommendations based on, for 50,000 of the population, what CAMS staffing should be. Yeah. We also know, or certainly I've looked at from the stats, is that the HSE is still calculating the percentage of um, teams and staffing that's available based on old census data. And obviously, COVID is impacting our ability. But my understanding from my reading of the data is actually the, the gaps in staffing are actually like much more significant when they look at the increases in population. But we, we see that certainly within psychology, within social work, you know, upwards of 90 plus staff short based on 2014 recommended levels. So I think it's not unreasonable to think that you could have in or around 100 social workers, 100 psychologists short of what's needed just to provide the service for that specific cohort. Yeah, it's it's something that obviously has come to people's mind in terms of the recent issue around CAMS and, and the uh, what happened in Kerry in terms of the, the intervention, which was wrong. Um, and the, the medical, as far as my understanding anyway, and what was reported in the media, um, the by that uh, particular um, health professional down there. And what came out of that conversation, what I was struck with and, and that controversy and um, really just horrific imagining that your child is in that situation and the supports that you've been given are the wrong supports, but also been struck by that, what you said there about those kind of earlier intervention stages, the, you know, you're saying the six to eight sessions, you know, with a psychologist that, that that support, I imagine if you're understaffed and overworked, the default position is almost to move to the medical model rather than using the more, you know, time consuming um, intervention, which at an earlier stage could avoid the necessity of medicalization. Would you see that? Absolutely. See it every day, every, every day of the week. And GPs are put in an, an enviable position. They know those primary level supports aren't there. There may be a case that it may not reach the threshold for CAMS, but GPs have to send them somewhere to get those, those kids support. Um, but I mean, you've raised a good point about what happened in Kerry. And it, we, I spoke about this this morning that we have over 2,300 children waiting for a first appointment. And that's the key metric that the HC uses around wait time. But what we experienced in Kerry is that you also need to look at what happens afterwards. Yeah. What's yeah. the process when they get in? Because in many cases, a child may be waiting internally for the therapy that they, they need, but that KPI is not recorded anywhere. So we have to look at the journey. We have to look at the outcomes. Yeah. We have to listen to the experiences of, of children and families. Um, and I think not when a crisis occurs, we need to be routinely doing it. And, and the HSE is planning to survey the experiences of children and families who've attended camps. And this is, it's long overdue because they have to be as much partners in what happens as the staffing. So yeah. if you don't get the outcomes that you're looking for, families need to be able to ask the questions, why? Why didn't this work? And we need to have advocacy services that can support them to be able to do that. I've met many families who 
have been worried about, you know, asking questions about the kind of care that they received because they waited so long to get in. They're worried, well, if I ask a question and if I upset someone with the question, then maybe I won't get the help I need. And, and that's that's not a good place for a parent or a child to be in. They have to be able to ask questions and have them transparently answered. So you know, it, it's the only right thing to do if we're going to support children. And, and the other thing that comes up here um, is that that whole issue of inequality. And maybe Tanya come in on this in terms of, you know, the inequality of children who's who's are from backgrounds where parents can afford um you know the the interventions therapeutic to pay for therapists and and other uh psychological interventions and you know obviously in some cases parents can't afford but they actually scrape the money together somehow you know and um it's just it's an exacerbates an inequality that whole area doesn't it yeah, I mean, you'll you'll talk to families and they'll tell you that a professional has told them where they are on the waiting list, but they said, if you can afford to pay, uh, if, uh, uh, do this privately, go and do it. You're, you, you know, get you get the treatment that you, to get the treatment that you need. So, I, I think it's it's a very difficult position to put parents in. I mean, it happens from uh, in, in the disability area as well in terms yeah. of getting access to therapeutic supports. Some parents end up really having to pull and every resource they can to make sure they can provide the resource that the, the child actually needs. So it it creates a real inequality, really, to be honest, because because of that. Now you can't blame parents for doing that because. Of course, that's no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I do it. I wouldn't leave my child on a waiting list for CAMS. I'd go off and see if I could get the kind of supports that they need in the meantime. But it does mean that parents that have more resources, the more time to look for the right interventions and also fight for the services, because that's the other thing. Like parents in this situation, they are exhausted. I mean, you, you, you've heard from the families in Kerry what, what a lot of them have been through to get their children yeah. into CAMS in the first place. And then, as Mark said, they're afraid even to question what's going on. But that's across the board. You get that with with parents with children with disabilities as well. They're going through very similar experiences and frustrations and it can get very aggressive. And a lot of parents do give up because there's only so much they can actually deal with. Yeah, no, no, the... That you're right. That personal toll on people and families, and of course, the children pick up on that, and you know are experiencing that as well. Mark, what do you think needs to change here on this? I think just to come back into that point, and it, and there is that absolutely stark reality that some families do because of the lack of public services try to go private. But the other reality is that families are struggling to get anybody privately at the moment. So yeah. be that psychologists or social workers, OTs, SLTs, they're just not there. So. I know most of my colleagues working in private work have closed their waiting list because of demand. Um, so it's not like that there is a, a pot and pool of available people that, that can take up that demand that's there, even if people had the money. I had one family say to me that, look, we, we're doing okay, we're financially stable, but we just can't get anybody. Because the other reality is that government has been failing in terms of workforce planning to plan for meeting demand. So we know that there isn't enough psychologists being trained, not enough OTs being trained, SLTs being trained. And there isn't a coordinated plan for how they're going to make that happen. So this is going to take years to remedy. If they provided the additional funding for more psychology places this year, it would be at least four years before we get them into the workforce. So yeah. every one year of delay results in four more years of, of under-resourcing, underfunding, um, and families are going to continue to struggle when they shouldn't have to. Yeah, it, it, it is that issue of lack of planning. Again, I suppose, lack of, of valuing this area. Do you think that the CAMS sort of crisis controversy will help shift that somehow? Do you think we'll see more parents coming forward and challenging? Because it seems to be that that's what's required to change this, that parents, you know, have to advocate on, on their own children's behalf, but then on a wider public level as well. 
I think parents will come forward, but I think they should be supported to do so. I think there should be an advocacy service that allows them to do that. That gives them a medium that they don't have to take on this burden by themselves. Yeah. They're going through enough as it is trying to manage their own stress, their anxieties, as well as support their children. So to take on this additional battle on their own would, I think, seem like a, a tall order. We see that there are advocacy services set up across the health service in different areas, but not mental health. And you'd have to wonder why. And, and I think if there was going to be some early momentum and some learning from it, that's one of those things that we have to take on board is that how do we support people to speak up if they need help? And, and we can provide that, I think, quite easily if the will is there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's important, important and a good idea. Mark, listen, thanks so much for joining me. I know you have to go on Reboot Republic and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Tanya, just to move on to the area of homelessness, which is obviously a big uh, area we cover on this podcast. Um, the whole issue you highlighted was, well, two areas specifically, family homelessness, the rise in family homelessness um, and uh, youth homelessness. Do you maybe want to just outline what, what yeah. you, the report card says in those? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this year the government gets an E grade um, and last year the government got the C grade. So quite, quite a different in grade. And we have an independent panel that... Uh, that grades the report card and, uh, you know, they, they keep us honest. And one of the things that really struck them was just the reversal. Uh, so we have pandemic measures last year and the year before that really kept people in their homes, bans on evictions, and, and that did make an, an enormous difference. And when some of those measures are removed, what you see is over the course of 2021 is an extra 100 families are in homeless accommodation by the end of the year. So that's telling you something uh, is, is seriously going wrong. And there's a trend, unfortunately, emerging. And what concerned us was at the same time as these numbers are growing, we're seeing record numbers in terms of rent, uh, house prices increasing. So that's predicting to us that there's a major problem emerging uh, in, in this area. So the government there gets uh, gets an E grade. And I think what they need to do to address it, um, I mean, they need to look at rent, rent control policies around, you know, reducing the, the, the rent. Because I know on my job, for example, the child poverty statistics don't actually tell you a real, the true picture of actually what's happening <laughs> when it comes to what's going on at home. Because those child poverty statistics only pick up families on very low incomes. They don't pick up the, the family. Maybe there's a one income or two incomes that are spending huge amount of their, their money every month on paying rent uh, and dealing with energy bills. Uh, those families just aren't picked up. So, you know, there is a huge issue, I think, when it comes to parental income. And, and the impact on children then is that parents just don't have money to, to make these terrible choices. Do I feed my child or do I pay the energy bill? Um, yeah. they're, they're very stressful for them. Um, children often then don't tell their parents when they need something. They're afraid to tell them I need a new pair of uh, football runners. They don't want to put stress on them. So behind those statistics, there are people living day to day just to try to get, to get, get, get through. On the area of youth homelessness, what I suppose concerns us is that the government did commit to do a youth homelessness uh, strategy. Um, but work on that has been slow. And if you look at the statistics, there's nearly a thousand uh, young people between the ages of 18 to 24 um, that are are, home, are deemed homeless in the statistics. So that's that's quite a high number. Yeah, um, it is, and yeah. then there's also kind of a, a small number, not insignificant, but a small number of young people who end up in Tusla's care 
uh, and there's been difficulties with I think Tusa trying to identify accommodation for them as well and sometimes they may be placed in inappropriate accommodation in, in, in the meantime so I, I, I think we're seeing despite there's obviously some major efforts coming from the government I think we're seeing a, a deteriorating situation in, in the housing situation. Yeah no I think you're absolutely right and it's something that um, you know is deeply frustrating that after seeing measures that actually worked in practice, like the moratorium on evictions, um, for example, the freeing up of accommodation that was Airbnb, Airbnb, should I say, to you know house families out of homelessness, um, and in particular, what what's disturbed me looking at the figures the last six months has been that dramatic rise in evictions going on, notices to quit served to, um, individuals and families, but obviously in this context, it's children. Um, and I really don't feel that there's enough of attention put on the impact of families being forced to leave their homes and the impact on children. And there seems to be, I think anyway, a failure to recognize the impact on children and families of that. And not even if they go into homelessness, but if, if, if they go and try and find somewhere else, like that disruption on a child's life is massive. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a re, it's a, one of the big adverse childhood experiences when it when it does happen, and some a child will carry that for for the rest of their lives. That level of destabilization that has hit the family and the shame. I mean, there, there, there's so many different emotions mixed into yeah. it when when it does actually happen. But it is frustrating. I mean, it is frustrating when these measures that you know campaigners were looking for and they were tried and tested during the pandemic and they worked they worked actually um and these other measures like controlling airbnb and who has access to the accommodation it actually works um i mean the the the, the big battle isn't it there's, there's two drivers in this area and unfortunately there's, there's one particular direction winning out is that government is, is, is dealing with wealth growth and wealth management and that's its policy for people to to develop their wealth and on the other side they don't want to see people homeless they want to see people in adequate accommodation but they're unable to put the measures in place i think that could make the real difference and we've seen when they do put them in place they work <laughs> yeah absolutely i think as well there's another dynamic which is that they have their policy sort of response is supply, supply. When supply comes on board, it will deal with the issues. And they are overwhelmingly dependent on private investment, private landlords to provide the supply of, in particular, social housing, but new housing developments. And I think that handing over of the supply has meant that they're like, oh, we can't do anything to read that might deter that supply. And it is an illogical situation whereby you're saying, well, actually, we're going to allow people to be in situations that we know are traumatizing because it might deter some supply rather than going, actually, you know, this is just wrong. We have to stop it. And, and right. I mean, it's, it's funny. You know, I live in a house. Um, I live in the centres in Dublin 8 and uh, Rory, you'll know the story behind them. But the first families, they were the first council houses built by the Irish Free State. And they were built for uh, families, working families with at least four children. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in a council house and it has always struck me, you know, why we just cannot go back to that time and start really thinking big, start investing in public building program, uh, making houses available for diff- different groups of people at different levels. I mean, that that's obviously where we, we, we need to go. But 
Uh, and obviously the private industry does have a role to play, but I think that the problem is the state needs to intervene uh, as well. I mean, the other thing that strikes me with, I suppose, the reliance on, on private sector, I also think about the not-for-profits because um, we have a lot of the housing charities in our membership and they've told me about, you know, they're all trying to build housing as well to try to address the issue, but they're being outbid by these big property uh, conglomerates, you know, yeah. so and they're they're trying to pay high enough prices, but they they still can't beat them. Uh, so I think there, there's lots of different measures that needs to be put in place uh, that could make a real difference to. And I would, you know, that, that there's no reason why we, we we couldn't end homelessness within two or three years' time. I think if some of these measures were were, were introduced, because we saw what happened with the pandemic. I, I absolutely agree, and and I think you know, fundamentally, you know. Health, housing, education are the fundamental, you know, things that children need to be to have their start in life to develop, you know, to be. And I think for when you look at the UK, for example, and this, you know, the the the, I, I, the figures of homelessness there are just astounding. Like I think they're they're in the hundreds of thousands at this point, um, you know, and they have followed, you know, that model of you know not building council housing to some extent even worse than us, but very similar to us. And I think I, I think that the problem is that we're still, you know, the government is saying, yes, OK, they're starting to build social housing, but it's nothing like the scale of what's needed. And if we're actually going to provide children in this country, you know, a foundation of security of a home, I think the scale of social housing that needs to be built and public housing on a broad level to buy as well that the state would build, yeah. I think is just way beyond what currently policy is understanding or attempt or going at. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the the and obviously the UK is the last country in Europe you want to follow at the moment when it comes to their yeah. policies. Not only in terms of housing, but also in poverty. I mean, they've dismantled all the measures that were put in place by Tony Blair's government, uh, with the result they have some of the highest levels of hunger not seen since the Second World War. So, um, absolutely agree with you in, in yeah. the, the direction of travel. Yeah, and we are seeing families in Ireland go hungry as well now. We're, you know, we're hearing this reported that as a result of paying rents, that the families are going hungry. Yeah, and and I think one of the the challenges with Ireland is food costs more here than in other countries. Um, and uh, you'll have a situation you have a situation where some communities people don't have access to good quality supermarkets, so it just makes it much much more challenging to have a healthy diet. But the other thing we know is. We know already from the work that has been done by the Vincentians that our, our welfare payments actually don't allow you to buy a healthy diet, essentially. They've done the analysis. Um, yeah. And we know we, there's a deeper problem, I think, when it comes to things like minimum wage and uh, supplements to help families, but also looking at those basic welfare rates because they're not empowering families to, to buy food. I mean, the you know, food banks have a really important role to play but they should only be used for people who uh, fall on hard times just immediately. Now, they're better off being given income, but for people who can't manage income, essentially. So you might have someone who's struggling with addiction issues where something like a food bank could be very important for them. But families should have enough money to be able to buy food. They shouldn't have to rely on food banks to, to live. I do know this is an area that the government is doing work on. They have a, a working group looking at potentially introducing measures so you could imagine, actually, you know, really what you want is the answer would be, uh, if you take the, the European example, having school meals in, uh, in, in as part of the school day, part of the year, your early years programme, part of your youth service, um, making sure that you don't have holiday hunger, making sure families have enough to, to live on. 
uh, to buy food, making sure that there's uh, community education programs around food as well. Because I think one of the other issues affecting children is that um, when they and they've done studies on this, this kind of market driven approach to um, the way food is made available is a lot of families have lost cooking skills. Uh, so there was a study the Coombe did um, where the infants were being fed um, whizzed up fast food. So you're talking six, seven months old. Um, they went deeper to find out why was this happening? What they found was the families have been living on, because um, it's cheap, right? It's, it's also very cheap and affordable um, on processed food and didn't have cooking skills that were necessary to help them switch to healthier food. So that's also part of trying to address the underlying yeah. deep inequalities that families are facing. Yeah, no, no, there is. There's so much to do in that. And, um, you know, it's something we will continue to highlight here. And, and thank you for all your work and the Children's Rights Alliance work on it. it. It's so important. And that report card, people can check that out. Is it available on your website, Tanya? Yeah, it's available on the website, uh, www.childrenrights.ie. Great. Yeah, no, it's well worth the read. Really important. And thank you, as I said, for continuing to highlight that. And we'll continue to, to have it here as well. So thank you, Tanya, for joining me today on Reboot Republic. Thanks, Rory. And that was Tanya Ward there uh, covering the Children's Rights Alliance um, report card on the various issues uh, that are affecting children in Ireland. You can check that out on their website. Um, And also a reminder to our listeners, thank you so much to those of you who are patrons, who are supporters. Reboot Republic is independent media produced by Tortoise Shack Media. That is of Tony Grove's fact-checked fame. And we are completely reliant on you, the listeners, to keep the lights on here. So if you can, please support us. Go over to patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. Sign up for whatever you can each month. That would be fantastic to help us keep putting out these podcasts that we know you're listening to. We know you really value um, and we value too. And it's it's really important that uh, we talk about these issues, we highlight them, and we continue to say that we need um, a republic of equality, which is what uh, every child in this country deserves. So thank you so much to Tanya and Mark, and we'll talk to you all soon. <laughs>